0: You know, you don't learn anything by surrounding yourself with people who are just like you. And as knowledge becomes more niche, or even if we get science fiction about it, as AI and software becomes capable of doing rote knowledge-based work, I think the real innovation will be at the overlapping edges between different fields that otherwise wouldn't have bumped against each other.
1: Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the PASS Foundation and your host. We hear frequently that the global education system is broken. In fact, we spend billions of dollars trying to fix something that's actually not broken at all, but rather irrelevant. It's obsolete. A hundred years ago, it functioned fine. So let's talk about how we reimagine, rethink, and redesign our educational system. So welcome to this episode of Learning Unboxed. I'm very excited today, actually, to have um, um, with us our guest is Dr. Alex Bandar. I am truly, truly honored and thrilled, actually, for him to be here because Alex is, first and foremost, an awful lot of fun and one of the most brilliant folks um, that I've had the... Privilege to both meet and work with. Um, Just a little bit of background um, for Alex. He is the founder and my favorite part of this the chief mischief maker at the Columbus Idea Foundry. And Alex um, is an engineer um, by training, a serial entrepreneur, a startup guy. Uh, general roll up your sleeves and solve the world's problems entirely tied to this crazy idea he had a bunch of years ago around let's help people make things and and inspire the world I think that's the best part of, of the endeavor um, so I'm really excited to have you here so welcome
0: uh, thank you very much and a bald man has a lot of face to blush so thank you for making <laughs> me blush a bit <with>
1: <laughs> all the way to the tips that's what we <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) aim for here. Well, so um, one of the reasons I was so excited uh, to have Alex with us today is because there is so much chatter, so much chatter in the world about what we should really be doing as we think about the next generation of teaching and learning and the whole idea about work and what work is. There's so many different ways we could go with that. And what really uh, intrigues me and is exciting about this is that There is also been over the last uh, 10 years, but really, I would say the last five in particular in the world of education, folks got enamored with this idea of making and being makers, and that we should have maker spaces in our schools. And I really want to dig into that because I have some pretty strong opinions about this, and I know that Alex does too. So before we move to the big giant endeavor, um, that is maybe the world's biggest maker space, um, let's talk about the smaller versions of it that actually lead to the next conversation about the community version, which is really where I want to get. But but let's talk about this idea of informal maker spaces in traditional education settings. There's a, some intriguing pitfalls in that space. And I know you've seen a number of them and got to live with them um, over the years in your own work. So so let's uh, let's talk a little bit about that. So when schools have this notion that we need to have this thing because everybody else has this thing, this this giant makerspace, what do you think about that? As somebody who lives makerspace,
0: yeah, I uh, I think they're right. I think people uh, owe it to themselves to learn a little bit about. I'm preaching to the choir. Project based learning, critical skills, uh, being empowered to realize your own ideas, whether it's an art project, a retail product, or an innovation. And I was struck when I was in engineering school. I often had a lab or an engineering exercise which was designed to replicate an outline on a piece of paper that someone had done before and before them. And it was pretty dry. And for someone who has even the slightest bit of creativity, being empowered to have a few tools and a few rules and then being uh, shown how to use them and how to break them is a whole lot more fun. So after I graduated college— it occurred to me that there might be more fun way to learn technology, and I really wanted to see if it was possible to trick kids into <laughs> learning tech through hands-on functional artistic projects, things like kinetic sculpture that moves and interacts so you learn a little bit about sensors and motors and programming and fabrication. And actually, uh, my turn to embarrass you now, Uh, Annalise. When uh, I first started, I thought this would be a great way to teach students, uh, K-12 groups, how to uh, engage with the democratized culture of the the maker movement. Mm -hmm. And so I rented a small garage, and I thought maybe we could be, (laughs) you, you know where I'm going with this, the center of a ring of schools that all wanted their own maker spaces and fab labs, but couldn't necessarily afford them or didn't want to manage The people or the equipment or the liability. And so I thought, hey, wouldn't it be a great partnership if the schools taught design to the kids and the kids brought their designs on a flash drive, hopped on a bus, came to our shop, and we built their parts for them. And uh, you were one of the first persons that was uh, recommended to me to, to reach out to. And I brought you in proudly to this 2,000 square foot, dusty, dark, humid place with broken glass and a milk crate and uh, extension cords. And I said, This is the future of STEM education. And you said, No way in heck. You know, we can't bring kids here. And, uh, and I remember I, that. Yeah. And I do that remember was that. honestly a really important lesson for me. You know, friends tell you what you want to hear, good friends tell you what you don't want to hear. So, that was, um, I think that laid bare the challenge that I had, which was there are these amazing resources in YouTube and open source software and cheap, powerful 3D printers. But a chasm to cross to be able to apply that to the institutional needs of core curricula of um, you know actually making sure students are learning something of value, and I think that's what you've been nailing for the last twenty years, mm-hmm. so it's uh so glad to be part of this conversation
1: yeah, no, absolutely and uh, I do remember vividly remember the first time I visited with you in the original. An idea factory, and that was exactly I remember saying. Schools will never come here. <laughs> yeah,
0: I, I, I think I actually toned down your language for radio.
1: <laughs> oh my goodness! But but that does um, it's, it's a, a great place for us to circle back around because although many schools wouldn't come there. Sort of the next kind of iteration in the journey on the way to the big, big, giant endeavor that you're living right now is that we did, however, see a spark ignited locally and regionally because of the work that you were doing around just really trying to get kids and families and community engaged and the opportunity to be creative and just think, very very differently and so one of the initial responses to all of that um, you know as especially as funding uh, was changing a little bit at that time uh, in Ohio it's of course now changed again but this par for the course um, was that schools started to imagine maker spaces of their own to sort of bridge that gap not on the same level of sophistication and so what we saw which became somewhat of a national movement and and to some ex- success but also to some mishap in the sense that what happens is that, you know, teachers or, will come along and want to have this great maker space. Um, and to your point earlier, not always going to have a massive amount of skills, certainly not across a full spectrum of the ability to make. And then that teacher leaves. And then what happens? Right. And, and these these fabulous makerspaces oftentimes never find their way into the the culture of an institution in schools and not that we're advocating by any stretch of the imagination not to have fab labs or makerspaces in schools. They're really, really wonderful, but they have to be deliberate and they have to be part of the core. And rather than just an add-on. And so then that gets me sort of back full, full circle to if you make the choice either to do it on a small scale or to not do it at all in your school, but rather do it in the community. That is truly where I see the amazing opportunity because what happens at the Columbus Idea Foundry is an entire ecosystem. So, um, share with us just a little bit about. So the, the, the version now. Columbus Idea Foundry, let's talk about what that thing is and can do.
0: Sure. Um, Well, so after that uh, very important lesson about 10 years ago, uh, (laughs) I was glad to pivot a little bit, especially since, as you pointed out, the community actually raised their hand, the community largely of adult artists creatives, entrepreneurs and techies. They said, "Hey, we want a clubhouse. We mm-hmm. want a place to to learn and work." And so I did tack a little bit and became a facility to help like I said folks who might have a day job but wanted to tinker with a 3D printer in the evening or someone who's aspiring to quit their career or a recent college graduate didn 't want to buy their own tools or have their own wood shop, so we became a, a center for creative and techie adults um, and that has resonated I think with the the techie and creative community in central Ohio, largely because you know we used to teach wood shop mm-hmm. and machine shop and mm-hmm. metal shop and uh, in our high schools. so now you have a generation of people like myself who have no less desire to create than we did since we uh, emerged as people on this planet, but don't have the native language for design, fabrication, innovation. So a lot of what we do isn't really class-based education. We're certainly not providing certifications. We're giving exposure to people about these cool tools, and then we're serving as digital Sherpas to point the way where they can learn more online. Mm -hmm. And that has served us well for 10 years. grown, moved a couple of times. Uh, bought a nice large warehouse in the emerging neighborhood of Franklinton, and uh, so by m- multiple metrics, we're one of the largest and most active maker spaces in the world. Almost seventy thousand square feet, eight hundred members, about four hundred small businesses, and because this culture is so fun, you know, uh, you know, learn welding in three hours, learn woodworking in a weekend, digitally sculpt something in virtual reality, and then print it uh, mm-hmm. a couple hours later. That I think does appeal to institutional educators who want to bring that culture to their students. And now that we do have uh, safe, hazard-free, air-conditioned <laughs> event space and classroom space. Completely
1: but, OSHA compliant. Uh, exactly
0: right. Thank God. Uh, <laughs> the educational <laughs> phone is ringing again. So, so we're bringing people in. Uh, and uh, and that's been a whole lot of fun.
1: Mm-hmm. And it really is. And I do think that, that that's uh, that's a key element, right? Because the other thing that we see frequently in the work that we do, sort of flip side of what's happening at the Idea Foundry. So, you know, to your point, we're out there actually in the schools, working with folks, trying to help them. And we often will bump up to the conversation, especially um, schools that are working um, on federal or state grants. I have this great opportunity, right? We're allowed to buy some stuff. And this a conversation that we hear from schools and teachers all the time we really want a 3d printer we really want to do this scanning we want to do video game design and all of all of those things are wonderful things to do with your kids for a thousand different reasons but if you can't put them into some type of tangible context it's just playing with a thing And so that's one of the things that I love about the work that you're doing now is that we now have a place to send folks, right? And to say, if you want to do a makerspace, then great. You not only need to learn how to use the tools, but you need to learn to think about the different ways you could incorporate it across everything that you are and that you do in your school. And folks can learn that at the Idea Foundry. And so that's pretty powerful opportunity um, for folks. The other thing, and this is one of the things that I like about this version of the Idea Foundry, is you can actually go there and learn a whole lot of stuff that's not specific to making because of the environment that you created. And again, that gets to that sort of community space Mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. happening there. You know, you go there for the folks that haven't been there yet, and we will um, provide some links so you can see it online, but certainly encourage folks. If you're in Columbus, it's uh, someplace you should go see. It's a unique experience. It's a beautiful space, but it's the most collaborative space I've seen in a really long time. And so talk about the way that the folks in that space interact um, in those very unintentional moments, but very meaningful moments, because that's one of the things that I see happening there all the time. And when mm-hmm. you talk with the folks that are living there because they have memberships there, they're going there to, to be, you know, an artist in that moment after, after their nine to five and they show up there, they all have a story about the way they've interacted with others there that's really, really meaningful. Do you have one of those stories where those sort of synergies happen that you think is, is, uh, is
0: oh, oh, sure, and and I think you've touched on one of my favorite aspects of the idea foundry, which is the interaction among members who really wouldn't have met otherwise. Mm-hmm. And and some of my favorite you know quotes. I had one friend. Uh, he was in the National Guard, local Ohio boy, boy, you know, grown man. <laughs> but uh, he said, "Hey, you know, I'm friends with the like, let's say, the eccentric." Glass art lady or the 3D printing geek and like, I love it. We work together and I never would have met them any other way. And uh, he had an invention that everyone collaborated on. And uh, I think, you know, you don't learn anything by surrounding yourself with people who are just like you. And as knowledge becomes more niche or even if we get science fiction about it, as AI and software uh, becomes capable of doing rote knowledge-based work, I think the real innovation will be at the overlapping edges between different fields that otherwise wouldn't have bumped against each other. And so having a place which attracts... Artists, entrepreneurs, techies, and then, you know, the people who make it succeed, marketing people, Mm -hmm. web development people, Mm -hmm. business development people. You show them how to use the tools and then you get out of their way. That, of course, is a recipe for for awesomeness. And uh, I think one of the metrics that demonstrates this is that uh, a few years ago, Make Magazine, which coined Mm -hmm. the phrase maker movement, they licensed maker fairs. I think they coined the phrase makerspace. Uh, they hosted a few competitions to see which city around the world can bring the most people together to do things like 3D printing and electronics and robotics. And about 300 cities competed in these international competitions from New York to Singapore, you know, uh, London, San Francisco – For giggles, we tossed our hat in the ring on behalf of Columbus, and nobody was more surprised than I was when we came in first in the world in in most of these competitions. In fact, I think they stopped hosting them because we kept sweeping them. Uh, (laughs) And our robotics team came in first in the world out of 3,000 schools. So uh, I think at first I was flattered to think that Columbus has the best makers Mm -hmm. in the world. Really, I think we just had a four or five year head start of raising our flag and attracting those optimistic, hardworking people who think, you know, they can learn a new skill, be a better person, a better maker tomorrow than they are today. And by having that head start and putting everyone under one roof, really fun things happen.
1: And I think that, that putting everybody under one roof might actually be, you know, sort of a secret uh, in that sauce to some extent, because... The other thing that I really love about what happens there is it is it is all about startup mentality in so many ways right So you've got you know raving entrepreneurs there right you know folks that are you know serial idea generators um, and a lot of other folks that are all about how do I take that idea and turn it into something else and and and, and, and everything in between right? and because you have that environment it doesn't shock me at all that columbus would be you know seen that way in that space because there are very other uh, few spaces both literally and figuratively, right, that I think functions like that. And part of that is that culture that is uh, Columbus. We 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 live in a really dynamic community where lots of things are possible. I, I often joke, people ask me all the time, why is the PASS Foundation in Columbus, Ohio? And I used to laugh and say, well, we have an airport. Right, but that is not truly the essence of it. That's a means to an end. But the reason that we're in Columbus and we decided to build the innovation lab there is because this is a city that's all about trying new things. It's part of the fabric of who we are. I think we see that in the Idea Foundry as well. So let's talk a little bit about, so this past summer, we went on a journey together, another journey together, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. After all of those years of me maybe not being very nice to you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I didn't say that. It was the most helpful lesson i would had, uh, I think, in those 10 years.
1: That is a very generous way to say that. <laughs> but we, we, we went on a journey again together. And I think maybe this sort of ties those components back together you know, as we in our work are thinking about how do we help kids find their passion? Uh, one of the things that we know, uh, we often talk to teachers in schools when they're struggling with implementing or shifting to a problem or inquiry or, or a project-based environment. We ask the question, what are you passionate about? What do you, what do you, if you could do anything and teach anything, what would it be? And we're always, and I do mean always, shocked by what, we discover people's passions. And that same principle applies to kids. So we we sent kids uh, for several weeks this summer to the Idea Foundry. So tell us a little bit about uh, what that experience and, and sort of what you learned from them. And how does that then inform what you might be thinking about next?
0: Yeah, that was uh, one of the my favorite things I've ever done is, is to work with the students who sent us. And I'm also someone who likes to have boots on the ground and and to be surprised by the devils in the details, uh, it's easy to design a curriculum and then hand it to someone else and say, okay, go teach this. And I learned a lot working with with your kids. Uh, and I love the phrase, find your passion, because I think if you can help people find what they love, what they're good at early on in life, then they can take a deep dive and really become an expert at something, make a career for themselves or a hobby they love. Uh, and it's, it's fun the whole time. I have to chase down this quote, but I heard once that people who are typically referred to as geniuses, early on in their careers didn't produce, on average, better work. They just produced more of it. And by producing so much, you throw everything at the wall and see what sticks. Mm -hmm. You find what you're really good at. You find what resonates with either the market or the scientific community or or society. And then you jump down that. So imagine if you can do that at 15 instead of 50. That's a heck of an advantage. Mm -hmm. Uh, So by teaching what we call theory-light, practice-heavy classes, I hesitate to even call our three-hour welding experience a class because, yes, you learn how to weld. Rather, you 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 weld. Uh, <laughs> it's hard to say, you know, like I said, uh, we're not certifying folks. You'd be hard-pressed to, to boast that someone could then weld anything they wanted mm-hmm. after just three hours. But it is enough time to say, do I have any talent or aptitude at all for this? Did I like it? Did I like being confined to the helmet? Did I like putting the jacket on? Did I like trying to balance my hand above the the sheet of metal to to get that perfect bead and uh if so, great, uh, and we can point you to avenues to, to continue that. If not, that's a valuable lesson too. Now, maybe uh, you enjoy virtual design more or, um, or creating music. So by having uh, a week or two where you can learn five to ten new things in a one-hour, two-hour exposure mm-hmm. and then pointing people to where they can take a deeper dive, thanks again to uh, information online, much of it free, then that gives kids and adults a, a big advantage.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the, you know, the kids, the kids loved going there. I mean, that was the highlight of their experience. We, we heard about it every time they came, came back in terms of the things that they were working on and they were doing. And, and I think that to your point, the, the thing that resonated the most with them was the fact that it was in small, doable chunks, right? And that they always had an opportunity to try, to fail, to try again. Right, but to also again have that opportunity just to say, "Mm, I don't really think that that's such a great thing for me, or I really loved this thing over here. And so, the kids were pretty funny as it relates to the opportunity. The other thing that we heard repeatedly from the kids, and just uh, for the sake of our listeners, this is a group of of kids in urban settings. uh, In this case, kids in the foster care system, so their their lives um, were somewhat hectic. I think is a fair way to put it. Lots mm-hmm, of mm-hmm. challenges, but incredibly resilient folks. Um, wonderful group of students that we got to spend our time with. And, you know, they loved the chance to make something. They loved the opportunity to sit down and do something to completion. And um, when we really started to dig into that, it was one of the things that those the kids, um, you know, made reference to is I don't always get to finish things that I start because circumstances may come along and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not even going to be able to finish. So that was pretty powerful. What do you think? Were there lessons that came from the kids that translate directly into the way you will either do programming differently or, or the way you think about what Idea Foundry does?
0: Sure. So uh, you mentioned that the, the students enjoyed the the small bite-sized experiences. And that is born from both necessity, frankly, from our business model. Like, we don't provide one or two year-long programs. Right. We're not a community college. We're not really a school. I joke we've invented a school where the answer to every question is Google it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it is that presumption that knowledge is out there and that education is no longer about information transmission from one teacher's head to five or 10 or 50 students. Instead, it's providing a survey of the landscape, letting people get their hands or their brains dirty, and then allowing the students to find what they like, what they're good at, and pursue that further. So I think this does reflect an evolution in how the nature of knowledge and education has changed in the last 10 20 years markedly from who was the uh, the first uh director of the department of education for the US and i think he had a quote like we need to produce students like a factory makes nails like just all the same all to the right specs and as quickly that might have worked in the industrial age in the, mm-hmm. in the manufacturing era now We need people who can think of things and do things that robots and software aren't great at. And Mm -hmm. that is innovating. That is, you know, thinkers that do, uh, doers that think. Um, So by uh, providing the tools, letting people play with them, uh, and then going home with something, I think, gives you a sense of agency in the Mm -hmm. world. And Mm -hmm. that's one difference maybe between entrepreneurs and folks who pursue more uh, career-based or um, corporate-based jobs is that entrepreneurs look at the world, and I'll say innovators look at the world as malleable, shapeable, that they can influence it. They're not just an actor constrained to the guardrails, but they can think of a new road. They can think of a new way to do things. And certainly... One of my uh, favorite learning moments was when uh, I wanted to teach 3D design, so sculpting with a laptop using this free program called Sculptress, and you could then take that design and 3D print it or machine it. And I picked this really cool—you can't see my air quotes—really uh, cool <laughs> dragon head that I thought, "What kid wouldn't like to sculpt and paint this dragon head?" Turns out none of them did, uh, <laughs> and so they're kind of bored with it. But most of the kids um, had smartphones, mm-hmm. and I downloaded a free smartphone case that you could include in the sculpting software and then personalize. You could carve your name, you could put your favorite celebrity's face on it, you could do this or that, and this one student really took to it, and then once you had that 3D file, I showed that you could bring it to a website called Shapeways, upload it, and in an instant, get a quote for how much it would be, uh, how much it would cost to print and have it mailed to your place. So you can actually realize these things, even if you don't have a 3D printer yourself, And uh, Shapeways said it would cost $18 for this one student's 3D-printed case. And a light bulb went off, and he said— I'm going to ask my friends if I can do custom designs for their phone cases. And then if Shapeways says it'll cost $18, I'll ask them for $28. Yep. And that's still in the mid-range of a, mm-hmm. a smartphone case at Target or where have you. But I'm pretty sure that guy a week earlier didn't think, you know, I'd like to start my own custom 3D phone case printing company.
1: Well, and and, and that student was so intrigued by that idea that um, that student asked me if I needed a new phone case. So um, that. That idea resonated clearly, clearly resonated. But I think that you sort of hit on what I think is probably one of the most tangible issues that as we think about the future of education, that if we don't get this piece of it right in the next iteration, that we're going to find ourselves in lots of trouble. And that was the whole idea of of learning and willingness to learn. Um, I have a great colleague, um, Heather McGowan, who spends a lot of time talking about learning and relearning and the willingness to learn, right? That the, the, the true next iteration of the future of work is, in fact, learning. Um, that you know, no longer can we just reskill ourselves and retool for the next job because of everything that's happening mm-hmm. in a technology-driven world. That we really have to be that thinker, you know, and willing to learn so many new things rapidly and be able to apply them. Um, and I think that at the end of the day, that's going to be a really big thing. And it's easier to learn to learn by doing. Sure. Um, so I think that there, there's a, a lot of application there. So as you sort of think about what this Looks like, and you're having conversations around helping other communities mm-hmm. create idea foundries. Mm-hmm. So, what does that process look like? And I'm not talking about the nuts and bolts, but at the end of the day, the fabric of the community and the collector of users, right, is highly essential, as well as all the lessons learned that, that you've been able to accumulate over um, the last few years. So, so what does that conversation look like if a community wants to do something along those lines in terms of, you know, there's a lot of landmines. There, you know, there are a lot of attempts at this that have failed. Why Why is Why is the Columbus Idea Foundry Alex Bandar's version of this movement? Why does this one work?
0: That's that's an interesting question. And I think one pivotal decision 10 years back was – was our business model. Uh, should we be, Originally, I wanted to start an educational mm-hmm. 501c3 that taught students technology. And I remember mentioning this to my old uh, commercial landlord, um, Marvin Katz, and, uh, and I explained what I wanted to do, and he looked at me and he said, what's wrong with making a buck? Uh, and I thought, <laughs> you know what? <laughs> Nothing. It, especially if you're effecting a socially forward mission in an economically sustainable way, then you've won. So um, I think our feet have always been held to the fire uh, at the idea foundry in terms of providing value that people are willing to pay for. So that has kept us very agile, very lean, very responsive to what the market wants. Um, So, And by market, I mean creatives, techies, Mm -hmm. and entrepreneurs. So that has um, kept us very tightly tied to our community. Uh, And also because this is an awkward business to start with high capital costs, high insurance um, uh, facility costs. It really started as a volunteer program. So we had lots of people who really feel like they have ownership over the culture, mm-hmm. and they do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because that has resonated with the community of Columbus, and I think you're right, it is a startup town. Mm-hmm. It is an innovative space, uh, very diverse, um, lots of tech, lots of education, lots of retail, a very good mix. I think it's, it's allowed us to grow. In a market where, uh, you know, I have friends who run makerspaces in San Francisco and Boston, real estate prices are different. That's Mm -hmm. another reason Columbus Mm -hmm. is a good place to be located. So there are a number of, I would say, lucky happenstances, a perfect storm. Our recipe is maybe imprescriptible. So people come to me and say, hey, Alex, I'd like to make a makerspace like you did. I said, no, 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 no. you want to do it a lot smarter than Mm -hmm. we did. We did lucky. Mm -hmm. So when we work with folks... Uh, to your point earlier about um, what is the broader ecosystem or community or mission instead of the nuts and bolts. Why does a neighborhood need a makerspace or a culture of creation? And I love uh, Professor David Staley at OSU uh, likes to say that Columbus, rather than aspiring to to be like our other peer cities like Pittsburgh or Portland or Austin, uh, he'll say, you know, we'll never be more Portland than Portland, so don't even try. (laughs) Instead, our aspirational city should be Renaissance-era Florence, Italy, uh, where you have the town square where you've got artists and guilds, people and apprentices and merchants all working together, all collaborating, uh, sometimes accidentally. And I love that vision of an intentional neighborhood where you've self-selected people who are those artists, those creators, those entrepreneurs. And so if you do have uh, a makerspace as the anchor, you have coffee shops and restaurants that people want to hang out in, you've got residential spaces. That, I think, is an innovation neighborhood. And I think it's also a lifelong learning neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a place where you know, people go to school, they get their degree, they pick their career, and they do that for 40 years. I think, as you said, mm-hmm. that's probably done. <laughs> oh, oh, it's and, over. Yeah, yeah. So, so instead of taking the heavy lift and asking yourself every few years, oh, do I go back to school? Do I get a certificate at a community college? Do I try to struggle with an online course in my living room? Well, no, there's actually this entire community of people who um, subscribe to and embrace this culture of uh, solo learning or or rather uh, continued lifelong learning. And it's actually uh, social and fun, too. Mm -hmm. So that is uh, that's what I'm trying to see uh, spread uh, to other communities that want the same thing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that one of the other really sort of intriguing components of all of this and, you know, I hesitate to say opportunity, but I think at the end of the day, it probably is uh, that sort of opportunity space. You know, let's circle back around to how we started this conversation. Um, you know, as it relates to makerspaces in schools, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's still a point of great conversation about putting these creative places, whether they're innovation labs, uh, there's a lot of a lot of conversation around that. Um, uh, makerspaces, fab labs, you know, it's 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 a return. In many ways, right? So um, in the late 90s, early 2000s, we started taking shop classes out of schools all across the country and around the world um, in favor of CAD labs and things like that, right, to to be more modern. And, and I think that what we're finding collectively is two things. The first one is that we create an entire generation of folks who can't build anything. Great designers, architects, engineers, but who industry, it certainly tells me frequently, um, but these folks don't understand why it can't be built the way they designed it. It's never actually built. Mm -hmm. So I would argue that that is a key foundational component, that anybody looking to change what's happening in modern education, it should be a foundational piece. Um, You know, if you can imagine it, Take it all the way to build. Mm -hmm, mm And I can advocate for that. Um, the other piece of it, and so this is really where, where I'm hoping that you have some great insights for us, is that, again, we build these spaces, but that great teacher that loved the thing, who was the builder, who was the idea generator, either you know stays and, and lives out their career, and it's a wonderful experience, but there's no one to come in and take their place, or they leave um, for a variety of reasons, um, change their profession, their career, or they're recruited by other schools that recognize great teaching, right? And so they don't stay. And these places, these spaces, become stagnant mm-hmm. uh, because they're not part of the fabric. So we have to find a way to not only engage our students, but engage our, our, our teachers and our community to live those spaces in a traditional education setting. So what's your thoughts on that, Alex?
0: Yeah, um, well, this is where I was really grateful to to partner with you in the past Foundation on this uh, foster student camp over the summer. Because you're right, many people, a few schools will get a grant from uh, wherever. And they say, we've got the money, what tools should we buy? Right. And you have to say, well, let's take a big step back. What's the purpose of the space? What's the programming you're going to overlay on top of it? Exactly. Because there have been for 100 years textbooks on algebra and chemistry and uh, grammar I don't think there's a textbook on uh, 3D printing yet. Uh, There isn't a commoditized or productized curriculum, at least as far as I'm concerned or or aware of. You probably have a better uh, sense of the landscape where if you have this space and these tools, this is the programming you should teach in there. And it is very case-by-case and passion-driven by the the person who has a stake in it. And I think we're really um, at the spear tip here in Mm -hmm. terms of I might have a sense at the Idea Foundry of what the tools can do and what our adult community like. You certainly have a sense of what the schools need, uh, what value the students need to be able to walk away with. And this is, uh, I say this affectionately, the Wild West now Mm -hmm. in terms of opportunity uh, and a frontier to really make an impact. And so when we chat with other schools that want fab labs or innovation labs or maker spaces, often now, I have mixed emotions about this, uh, replacing their library. Mm -hmm then uh, we have this, well, let's take a step back and, and ask what it's for. Um, and with your with respect to your comment about the workshops being replaced with computer labs or CAD labs, uh, I recognize that. And there's a great book, uh, Shop Class of Soulcraft, mm-hmm. by Matt Crawford, who talks about this. And in fact, an incentivized phenomenon to get them out faster because it's actually cheaper than a machine shop. I think you need both. You, you, mm-hmm. Of course, you need the designers and engineers. But I, I think progress uh, happens um, like the pendulum swings too far one way, and, mm-hmm. and we're we're right. feeling it swinging back now. So I think with a little bit of hindsight, we can see where institutionally we might have misstepped, and uh, looking around the corner what value uh, we need to bring to to students uh, now and in the future. And I think that's uh, an exciting opportunity for the next 10 years to work together.
1: It is, absolutely. And I think that, you know, to sort of go along with that sort of trend in thinking about space as that mechanism for how we imagine teaching, learning, and work. Uh, In my mind, certainly, and I know this is uh, me uh, preaching to the crier, so to speak, is that, you know, the schools should be a place of community, right? We need to stop building schools for the sake of building schools that's part of you know, my, my, my mantra, I guess, my soapbox, because that's not the real world any longer, right? We, we don't have that sort of isolated opportunity that business and industry, makers, artists, entrepreneurs, startup folks, all living in that space with us makes the best opportunity to learn. Uh, No question asked. So I think that there is great (laughs) opportunity in that sort of Wild Wild West sort of space. So, you know, for for our folks who are contemplating um, sort of the next piece of their journey and many of our listeners are going to be folks that are intrigued in redesigning community, which includes school. Um, and, and, and includes uh, a lot of workforce development. Uh, there's lots and lots of conversation about that. What, um, what might your parting shot to them be as they stand on the precipice and say, I think we should do X?
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I can say one thing we're doing is reaching out to industry proper and asking them, rather than guessing what I mm-hmm. think they want, say, hey, what skill set do you want your uh, graduates to have when they walk in the door? Mm-hmm. And. Sometimes that's that's much too specific, you know, and, and that's what trade school is for. or That's what a certificate program is for. But I think simply undergoing the process of making something from, you know, mental image to sketched out concept to CAD model and then assembling the materials and building the thing and maybe having to do this two or three times, I don't know the name for the lessons you learned other than, um, you know, grit and stick-to-itiveness mm-hmm. and, not being able to predict the problems that will emerge. Uh, It is easy to 3D design something and then just assume a 3D printer will make it. And there are even... Things you can design that a 3D printer can't make right now. Wall thicknesses are mm-hmm. too thin or a material's not strong enough. So the lesson you get from building something and watching it fail, and it's becoming cliche to say, you know, fail faster, mm-hmm. fail better, don't be afraid to fail. That's the truth. And, and I I wish there were a word, maybe we can think of it right now, that where the emphasis is on the experience you've derived from the unexpected problems that come from taking something from concept to execution. And we don't just call it failure. Call it the, the delighted surprise of those uh, unexpected problems and how you worked around them. Uh, so uh, having done you know, a number of projects, this is why I have the natural intuition if somebody asks me to make something – I immediately double the budget and triple the time mm-hmm. just because yeah, I know, you know uh, it's it's not going to go the way you think. And I think that's the real value people get from making stuff.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so absolutely. And I think that, uh, you know, as we step back and think about failure, it's really that success for the next opportunity, right?
0: Mm-hmm. I like that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So... Thank you very much, um, Alex, for joining us today and for um, being a chief mischief maker. Uh, we greatly appreciate you um, in the community of Columbus, but um, also um, appreciate the, the work that you've put into getting folks to think about making very differently. So thank you. Well,
0: my great pleasure and uh, flattered and honored to be on your podcast.
1: Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.